For those of us remaining, if you are able, I would ask you to stand uh, out of respect for God's word as we read Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Well, would you please pray with me? Lord, we've already sung that to you all hearts are open. You know, the secret desires, the longings, the thoughts, everything is plain to you. And not only do you see clearly um, our sinfulness, but you also see clearly our need, what we need. Father, we pray that you would speak to us the words we need to hear. We pray that you would draw us nearer to Jesus and help us to understand what you promise, that with you there is forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you weren't here with us last week, we just began a new summer series on the Psalms. Um, and, and we, looking at Psalms 1 and 2, spoke of how the Psalms are given to us to, to guide us in the way of blessedness. And, and recognizing that blessedness kind of has a very churchy tone, we, we noted that that blessedness has this picture of a tree planted by water. It is saying this is the way to have a life of resilience, of strength, of being alive, of being fruitful. And the Psalms are written to train us in that way. And we said, looking at Psalm 1 in connection with Psalm 2, that, that this way of life and blessedness is by taking refuge in the rule of God found in Christ Jesus. So as we now move to this psalm this morning, perhaps you might have noticed that it begins the very same way that Psalm 1 began. It, it is promising blessing. Blessed is the one. Once again, we have a psalm inviting us to a way that is good, to life. And once again, in this psalm, we have language of refuge. Perhaps you noticed David himself talking about God is his hiding place. That's refuge. Or, or verse 10 speaks of surrounding us with, with steadfast love. That's 
refuge language. So again, we have this psalm talking about blessing and about finding refuge in God, but here is the focus of this morning's psalm, that that refuge that we find from God comes in forgiveness. Blessed, David says, is the one whose sins are forgiven. Now, unlike the first couple of psalms, this one is a very personal one. David speaks out of personal testimony here. So, it's probably useful just to begin by kind of considering the story behind this. David, you might say, in the time of Israel, was the closest Israel ever had to like a celebrity leader. Solomon maybe would kind of be a close second, but he was the king for a while who could do no wrong. He was incredibly successful militarily. He was incredibly successful politically, bringing the entire nation in unity, and, and he was known for his faith. He's the writer of Psalms. He's one who worships God faithfully. He was enormously popular and revered and powerful. And it was with this power that at some point in his reign, he chose to do something absolutely terrible. At some point, we don't know exactly when, while he was king, he sent some of his um, royal servants summoning Bathsheba, who was the wife of one of his best friends, brought her to, the pas- to, to his, his palace, brought her alone into a room, and he violated her. And a couple months later, he heard word from Bathsheba that she was pregnant. And we can tell based on the responses that he had that he was afraid. We don't know in the time in between whether he just kind of put his, his terrible act behind him, but once he knew something was happening, his fear came to the foreground, his fear of being exposed for what he had done, his fear of the consequences of his terrible action. And so he did what many people in power will do in situations like that. He went into damage control mode. He did everything he could to bury this. In fact, his desire to hide this went so far that he ended up choosing to have his good friend killed so that nobody would know. He was terrified of his sin, and he sought to take refuge by hiding. And though we don't know what it was like to be David, None of us will ever have an experience or have fallen quite in that fashion. I think we understand that impulse to hide, don't we? But maybe you've had this experience either as a parent or babysitting or an uncle or aunt. Have you ever had it when like a kid has done something just obviously wrong, like maybe hitting his brother or so angry, like takes a glass and throws it on the ground and it smashes, and then the child looks at you and see kind of your shocked face and suddenly just runs away and hides, like cannot deal with the moment of realizing he's done something wrong. And, and he's somewhere maybe in some closet. Have you ever had seen something like that? Little kids will do that. What's the plan in that? Like, what's the end game of the hiding? Are they, you know, going to hide there forever? I mean, obviously, that's the wrong question. There is no end game. It's just this, this impulse that when you realize you've done something wrong, you just want to hide. And I don't actually think that impulse goes away. It's a human thing, I think. Sure, as we get older, it's probably less often that there's like one particular event. Although that can happen. We can do something that just we feel viscerally it's wrong. But it can be more like accumulation of, of a sense of just kind of wrongness in us, a sense of us 
not being what we know we should be. Uh, we know we should be kind, but we're not. We know we should be generous, but we're not. We, we know that there's certain things that we should get done, but we just keep putting them off. Or we know that the things that we, we shouldn't do, but we just keep doing them. And our, our awareness of God, we know that we should be one who prays regularly to Him or someone who worships Him, but we know we're not. And, and when we have this just kind of growing sense of failure, one of our most common responses to it, whether it's a specific action or this larger thing, is we want to hide. Now, our hiding is not going into a closet. It's, it's different ways of avoiding. Maybe we try to fix it by being busy or we counteract it or we just try to kind of be so busy we don't pay attention to it or we ignore it or we just don't think about it, but it's there and we kind of hide ourselves from it because, because we're afraid. And that's what David did. David wanted to bury it. He wanted to hide it. But now as he's writing his psalm, as he's looking back, he, he recognizes that it was just... It was, it was a dead end, that he was not thinking. Um, verse 9, when he says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, he, he's, he's talking also about himself. That he, he was responding animalistically, without thought, without reflection. What was his end game? When, when he was aware of what he had done, and when he was aware there's about to be exposed, did he really think he could hide it forever, not just from himself, but from God? In the end, David comes to realize that the only person he was effectively hiding what he had done from was not just others, but himself. That he was deceiving himself. And yet even there we see that that self-deception didn't really work. As David describes his experience, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, verse 3, through my groaning all day long. It's like his body was revolting against him. That there was crying out within him this groaning, this sense of wrongness that made it so that his very bones ached. And if we're wanting to understand a little bit more of what he's feeling, I think the, the, the triad of words that he uses in verses 1 and 2 when he's talking about forgiveness give us a bit of a picture. So you, I don't know if you've noticed, there's three different words for sin here. There's Blessed is the one whose transgression, the idea of transgression involves a breach of trust within a relationship. Perhaps you can think of a time where, where you did something that hurt another person. It was obviously you did something wrong, and, and you feel this pit in your stomach, this, this inability to connect to that person anymore. That's, that's the idea of, of what happens with transgression, and no doubt that is part of what David was feeling. He has wronged the God that he loves. What does he do with that? The second word, sin, is more about the idea of, of failure, of, of not being, not, not making it to what they should be doing. It's, it's a word that can be associated with, with shame. And, and this too, David no doubt was feeling, this awareness that who he was meant to be, the king that God had called him to be, that is not what he has been, and he just feels ashamed deep within. And the third word, iniquity, has more the sense of, of guilt, the, the debt that we have. And no doubt David also thought of when he just reflected on what he had done, 
the utter inability to pay back, to cancel out his accomplishments. His whole being was crying out in protest even as he sought to bury it from his memory. And as David looks back, he realizes that it wasn't just his body that was revolting. Do you notice it's verse 4 that he understands what happens? Day and night, your hand, O God, was heavy upon me. God, it was you. You were the one who was pushing down upon my soul, and I was crying out, groaning. And, and perhaps if we're hearing this, we might think that David either is complaining or that we're thinking of some, that, that God is being described as cruel, but it's the very opposite. David is recognizing that God is not letting David live in the delusion, that God, through this suffering, is bringing David to realize that he's living a lie. And I, I want to pause for just a moment and, and say perhaps some of you this morning are feeling something like this. Perhaps, perhaps some of you have this, this awareness that you've been kind of hiding from yourself. Maybe there's some guilt that you're experiencing from something you've recently done or just this ongoing sense of failing. And, and you try to kind of remove yourself from it, you try to distance, but you just feel this groaning, this ache, this overwhelmedness. I, I want to suggest to you that that actually is God's kind hand upon you. Because what he is wanting you to understand is that the safety you are seeking is not to be found in hiding. So this week, I was um, reading a tragic story um, of a woman by the name of uh, Peggy Carlson, who, uh, having retired recently, was living in an island uh, in Florida right off of Fort Myers. And, and last year, you might remember in September, news started coming out that people in that area should be concerned because Hurricane Ian was coming. And it moved from general bad news to, to forced evacuations. And, and even her brother, Jim, was regularly pleading with Peggy not to stay there. She needed to leave. And he, she understood that there was danger, and she thought about leaving, but she didn't. She refused to. And, and as Jim later tells, it was because she was terrified. She felt so much anxiety about what was happening that she wanted to go to the place that felt safest. And the place that felt safest to her was her own home. And so on the morning of September 28th, the storm starts really coming around. And at a certain point, she realizes that there, things are not okay. She actually calls 911. And the people in 911 says, we can't do anything until the storm has passed. She is texting her brother. And the last text that she sends is, the door is gone. The water has come in. And days later, she's found in the water. She could not leave what seemed to her to be safety in her fear, even though it was an empty refuge. And what David is saying to you and to me is that as long as you and I are hiding, knowing deep down that our sin, that there is a storm coming as a result of who we are and what we've done, the more that you and I hide, we are fooling ourselves because it is not a safe refuge. What is our end game? This psalm 
invites us to a different way. This psalm says there is a safe refuge from our sins. There is only one safe refuge from our sins, and that is found in God alone. Which I realize, if, if we're thinking much about this right now, might seem so deeply counterintuitive, because if there's one person who is going to be bothered by our sins, bother is probably not the right way, if there's one person who is going to hate our sin, who will see it clearly, it's God. We might be able to kind of spin things with other people. We might be able to get people to kind of affirm our decisions and say, it's okay, we get it. But God is not compromised. He is not fooled. He sees everything about you and how utterly wrong the things you've done wrong are. And yet it would seem, so it would seem that the furthest from the per, that he's not the one that you want to draw near. And yet, David says, no, it's the exact opposite. There is only one place where you can find safety from your sins, and that is in God himself. That is where your refuge is to be found. The turning point of our psalm is verse 5, where David says, I, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Each of those three words, do you see repeated, that, that sin, that source of shame, he exposed. That guilt that he sought to hide, he made plain. The transgression that stood in the way of his relationship with God, he brought to God and acknowledged it plainly. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verses 1 and 2 kind of expand on that idea. His transgression is forgiven. Forgiven is the idea of, of removal. This, this weight upon their relationship that was insurmountable just gets lifted and their relationship now feels light. Whose sin is covered, if sin is the source of shame, now David is clothed with dignity and beauty that he did not deserve. Against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. If iniquity is debt, say it is an insurmountable debt, God says the debt is canceled. Every aspect in his relationship with God caused by sin is now And so David in this moment knows that he's safe. Verse 6, when he speaks about those who turn to God, he says, Surely in the rush of great waters they will not reach him. The hurricane, the storms that come because of the things we've done wrong, for those who turn to God, the water will not reach you. Why? Because you, God, are a hiding place for me. I have been hiding. I have been hiding myself. I've been hiding these things, and it's been a failure. You are the place that I can hide. You preserve me, David says, from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I am safe. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment because there's a way that I think we might misunderstand what David is saying. David is not saying to God that you remove all of the troubles, but rather that you preserve me 
in these troubles. And that's a really important distinction. Because if you understand David's story, if you know what happens, you will realize there are all sorts of consequences that still come from what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. His family will be torn apart. His kingdom will ultimately be torn apart. There are consequences for sin, and God never promises to remove those earthly consequences. If we were to speak in kind of present-day situations, say we were to hear of a, of a pastor who was found to be abusing someone. Now, Let's say also that somewhere along the line we find out that this pastor is truly repentant, recognizes what he did was utterly awful and unforgivable. He will still need to lose his job. In fact, quite likely, depending on the situation, he will still need to go to prison for what he has done. Those things are not removed, but here's what's changed. He can know that if he has brought his sin to God and taken refuge in him, that God will be with him through these things. That God will preserve him, will care for him, will protect him so that even as he faces these consequences, he can know God is with him and he does not need to be afraid. And that's what David has come to realize. Yes, what he has done is horrible and the consequences are unthinkable, and yet the refuge he finds in God is even greater. which is an extraordinary thing. When we really allow ourselves to feel just how awful what David did is, to think that God himself would say, come to me, bring your sin to me, and you will be safe in me. And David says that is what he experienced, and it's not just something that he experienced about himself. He is declaring this because he knows this is not just true of him, this is true of God for all. There is a place in uh, verse 6 where it speaks of a time, translated a time when you may be found. Literally, it's just the time of discovery. David, I believe, is saying that there will be certain times, certain moments perhaps in our life where the things that we have buried will come to the surface. There will be certain times where what we have been avoiding about ourselves, the things that are dark that we would rather not anyone know and certainly not ourselves, suddenly becomes plain, and we will feel afraid. And David says, in that moment, don't hide. That is not where refuge is to be found. Instead, he says, offer prayer Everyone who is godly, offer prayer to you, God, at a time, at that time of discovery. Because as we come to God in our confession, we experience blessing. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, we are told. And notice at the end of verse 2, blessed is the one in whose spirit there is now, there is no deceit. I hope by now you might recognize what is the very simple truth that this psalm is inviting us to understand. That there is blessing offered. Blessing is promised. And that promise is not blessed are all those who do everything right. There is 
a, a reality to that. There is blessing for those who are faithful, but that's not the promise that we have here. The promise here is blessed are you if you have so deeply messed your life up that there is no way back in your imagination. Blessed are you if you turn to God in confession and experience the forgiveness of sins. Do you understand how extraordinary this is? That no matter what you have done, no matter how stuck you feel, there is a way to blessing for you because refuge is found in God. This psalm is declaring, David is declaring that God is safe if you turn to him and confess your sins because he promises to forgive you. And it's not just David who is declaring this to you. I said last week, um, and I don't know if this is a new thought, but that when we are hearing these psalms, we are meant to understand that it is not just we who are singing or David who is singing, but in some ways the first person who sings these songs in terms of what it's most for is Jesus. These are, as our sermon series is called, the songs of Jesus, which right now maybe feels like a strange thing to say when we're talking about a psalm that's so much about confession of sin. I mean, isn't it the case that Jesus lived perfectly and never sinned? And and, and yes, the answer is to that. And yet, we need not imagine that when Jesus was in the synagogue with his fellow villagers and it comes to Psalm 32 that Jesus just shuts his mouth and lets everyone else sing because it doesn't apply to him. Because that's actually not how Jesus understood himself. He came into this world to be one of us, to be one with us. He he entered into our sin-sick suffering to lift us out. He identified with us so deeply that our sin became his sin as well. And so he passionately, heartfeltly sang Psalm 32 with everyone else, forgive us, Lord. He carried our sin with him unto the cross. He felt God's heavy hand upon him. He groaned at the weight of the sin that he carried on our behalf. He took it unto death. And as he experienced that, what does he do? He turns to God for refuge and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And three days later, God declares not guilty, raising him from the dead. Jesus raising in victory. And as he rises, everyone who has trusted in him, everyone whose sin he bore, rises with him, knowing that they are forgiven. Here's here's the wonderful thing. If if right now you feel just the the idea of being open with God, of opening, of exposing your vulnerable reality and naming it before the God who terrifies you. Know that you will never do this alone. That every time you are confessing, Jesus, in a very real sense, is praying right there with you, saying, Father, please forgive us. In fact, that is what he was doing on the cross. 
We need to understand that when we have this promise of verse 10, to hear Jesus himself as the one who has gone through it and is now on the other side declaring, this is true for you as well. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. It is going to always be sorrow bringing if you choose to stay alone, removing yourself from God and hiding. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This is, if you haven't already understood this, an invitation. This is a declaration. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. You are invited to come. And what Jesus declares to you is that as you come and as you name your sin, surrounding with steadfast love. Do you understand that idea of surrounding? That's, that's the picture of an embrace. That for all who are coming to God, they find not just a refuge, not just a shelter, but a Father's welcoming arms who seeks to hug you and welcome you in. Blessed, we are told, are the one whose sins are forgiven. Blessed are those who turn to God for refuge and bring their sins to Him. I want to... um, allow us to respond. Some of us perhaps have never brought our sins before God and are, are, are feeling the weight and it's overwhelming. Others of us perhaps have, but we, we continue to try to put things back on our own shoulders. Here is the time for us, whatever our situation, to turn to God and to bring all things before Him so that in us no sin of deceit will be found but rather that we would come before God and experience Him as our refuge. I'm going to lead us in a time of of, um, corporate confession, and then we're going to go straight from there into singing Psalm 51 to continue to kind of lead us in that time of confession. Uh, And then we'll even have a time of of silence after that. Um, So would you please uh, pray with me?